Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today we're talking about utilitarianism. We're going to start with Bentham. We're going to do some John Stuart Mill. We're going to move through, talk about Sidgwick, talk about Peter Singer, talk about Derek Parfit. We're going to do kind of the whole little story of utilitarianism here. Uh, when we talked about commerce and luxury last time, we left by saying the, the big ethical response in the English-speaking world to the commerce and luxury debate is Jeremy Bentham and utilitarianism. And Bentham sews up the problem very neatly by just saying that pleasure is what's good and pain is what's bad. And if you do that, then a higher living standard, luxuries, all of these things are compatible with the good, uh, provided that they produce more pleasure than pain. Now, that argument is conceptually very neat and utilitarianism has always had appeal because it's conceptually very neat. But, of course, it gets a lot of pushback because there are a lot of people who are loathe, loathe to say with Bentham that pleasure is what's good. From the beginning of philosophy, going back to Plato, it has been very important for many moral philosophers to say precisely the opposite, that pleasure and the good are not the same thing and must not be conflated together. So there's that source of pushback. And then there's also this, this question about naturalism and utilitarianism, right? So you could position Bentham as a radical or a conservative, depending on what you emphasize. What's radical about Bentham is that he's just saying that pleasure is what's good and that pain is what's bad and that we can make public policy on this basis and therefore move in a quite straightforward way toward the good. And therefore, you have a quite straightforward definition of what counts as progress coming out of this theory. The conservative element of this is that if we are describing as good whatever people happen to find pleasurable and bad whatever people happen to find painful, then we're defining what's good in terms of naturally observable phenomenon, okay? Hmm. So Bentham tries to distinguish the utilitarian tradition from earlier traditions by saying, you know, what's natural rights? What's natural law? This is all, he says, nonsense upon stilts. It's a bunch of jargon, right? But there's still naturalism in utilitarianism because the conception of the good is tied to natural phenomena. Yeah. Pain and pleasure are natural. They're potentially measurable. They are experiential, yeah. right? They're very much tied to worldly experience. So there's still an empirical emphasis here. And this is a big part of why, say, scientists have tended to gravitate toward utilitarianism, because utilitarianism turns the good into something which is scientifically measurable, and it turns the good into something that scientists can say things about and measure and experiment with, and it allows scientists to make their way into moral and political philosophy on the basis of technocratic scientific expertise. So it has a lot of appeal for that reason, but that can be that can be conservative in the same way that all naturalistic theories of the good can be conservative. If you're going to say that the good is whatever people happen to experience as pleasurable, 
well, what people happen to experience as pleasurable can be the consequence of their contingent socialization. It can be the consequence of how they're raised, what kind of society they live in, what kind of polity they have. And therefore, there's a status quo bias in naturalistic conceptions of the good. And we've talked about this before in previous episodes when we talked about natural law theory and so on. You get a status quo bias if you take people's what, what people happen to find pleasurable or painful as straightforwardly the good. There's a reification of social construction that occurs when you do that. So those are kind of the two big issues with Bentham's utilitarianism. One is, is the naturalism, and the other is the hedonism. Right. Anything mm. else you want to you want to comment about Bentham, Edmund? Yeah, uh, I completely agree about the naturalism point because at the beginning of Bentham's an introduction to the principles of morals and legislation uh, in seventeen eighty one, he says nature has placed mankind under the governance of two sovereign masters, pain and pleasure. It is for them alone to point out what we ought to do, as well as to determine what we shall do. On the one hand, the standard of right and wrong. On the other, the chain of causes and effects are fastened to their throne. So, oh, that's a great quote. It just ties you know, what we're motivated to do and what we ought to do become one and the same on this theory. Yeah. And therefore, we can, by describing the scientific process by which our motivations are formed, say something about what we ought to do on this theory. Right. So it commits, you know, what David Hube called the is ought fallacy. It ties very straightforwardly what is to what ought to be. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, that that is, you know, committing the so-called naturalistic fallacy, which yeah, it does have its roots in Hume's insistence that it it doesn't make sense to extrapolate an ought uh, from an is, um, though yeah, a lot of yeah, people the naturalistic do it, and arguably Hume himself commits it by uh, saying that that uh, feelings of sympathy are what the good can be reduced to, and that uh, he says that quote reason is and ought uh, only to be a slave of the passions, uh, and in this way he's reducing. Um, the goods to something very physical, which is uh, our emotions, our psychological uh, drives and appetites. And um, uh, in this way, even those people who do uh, claim that it's wrong to reduce the goods to something natural, reducing an ought to an is, uh, it's very hard to not commit that fallacy either. Perhaps one person who doesn't is G.E. Moore, who's writing in uh, the early uh, 20th century, particularly in um, his uh, Principles of Ethics in 1903, um, Principia Ethica, which argues that, um, you know, f following Hume, that we can't reduce an ought to an is, um, and more goes further to say that the good is not definable. Uh, and the argument he uses to justify this is, the open question argument that whereas it's a closed question to ask, um, are all bachelors unmarried? Because it is um, of the essence of a bachelor to be unmarried. It is an open question to say, 
um, what is good. And it makes no sense to ask a question. Um, well, it might make sense to ask a question like, is good pleasure? But it isn't an open question. And it doesn't make sense to say the good is pleasure or the good is any other particular physical thing, because it's not possible to um, reduce the good to any one of those things, because you can never ask a closed question. You, it will never be the case that saying, is the good pleasure or is the good this other physical thing, um, this yields one answer that everybody can agree on. People will always disagree on what the good is precisely because it's indefinable. Well, and, and here are more, to some degree, gestures at, say, old-fashioned Platonist conceptions of the good, mm. which view the good as much harder to define and as something we have to continuously pursue through philosophical inquiry. Mm. Uh, and if the good is something that is translucent or opaque, uh, that we can't straightforwardly grasp and define, then an argument like Bentham's is necessarily going to be misleading. And of course, Platonists would, would certainly make that argument. Mm. The thing is, if you take a position like Plato's or you take a position like Moore's, it, it then becomes very difficult to straightforwardly tell people what the good is. And so people go, well, if it's not obvious what the good is, why should I care about it? Doesn't that potentially imply nihilism or indifference? And isn't that a bigger problem? So if you're not able to care about the good without being able to hammer down very concretely what it is, then you get stuck in this in this binary back and forth between either you need a very rigid conception of the good, or you're going to have no conception of the good at all and you're going to be doing without. Right? Yeah. And so the, uh, the appeal of Bentham and the appeal of utilitarianism, and I, I think it has some social value because of this, this appeal, is that for people who are unable to see the good in a more nebulous or nuanced way, it prevents these people from dispensing with the concept of the good altogether by anchoring it to something straightforward, which they can't help but recognize. Hmm. Right? If you anchor the good to pleasure and pain, most people have to admit that they care about those things. Right? Yeah. And existential comics on, on the internet, there's a comic strip, existential comics, where whenever they meet someone who's a moral nihilist or a moral relativist, one of the characters just starts punching the, the relativist until the relativist admits that the punching is bad. <laughs> mm. And that's the thing about a, an argument which ties the good to pleasure and pain. It's extremely intuitive. You don't have to be very philosophically sophisticated to get it, which is why I think a lot of young people, especially young people in the English-speaking world where utilitarianism has had the largest impact philosophically, are, are quite drawn to this. When I would talk to first-year students, very often if you ask first-year students what their moral perspective is, it will either be some kind of relativism or it will be utilitarianism. And it's very rarely anything else because in a world that is so heavily influenced by empiricism and the scientific method, a nebulous conception of the good seems mystical, spiritual, quasi-religious, ineffable and inaccessible, and hard to argue for in the language of empiricism which dominates contemporary society. Whereas utilitarianism is very easy to defend. It's very easy to make the argument that it matters whether or not we get hurt, uh, that it matters uh, 
whether or not people are tortured. It's an easy argument to make. It's very intuitively appealing. Of course, the the Platonist or, or G.E. Moore would go, but but surely it can't just be pleasure and pain. There have to be other things that matter beyond those things. Mm. But to have that argument about whether the good is about more than just pleasure and pain, it's important to first get people to accept the, the idea that the good is a relevant concept in the first instance. And in our postmodern world, very often we have a hard time even getting people to accept that point. And the utilitarians are, have a set of tools for getting people to at least go that far with them. And I think that it's a big part of the reason why uh, Anglo political culture has never been as thoroughgoingly relativistic as continental French or German political culture can be uh, because this of this utilitarian influence concerns about what's good and bad cannot be thorough, straightforwardly jettisoned or, or treated overtly contemptuously. Utilitarianism, to some degree, is a break on that, right? Now, mm. all that said, it has a lot of problems, mm -hmm. right? At, like we just laid out with the naturalism and with the hedonism. Yeah. So, if we, if we turn to John Stuart Mill... Right. Mill tries to deal with the hedonism objection. And the way Mill tries to deal with the hedonism objection is to say that, well, actually, you can tier pleasures. Some pleasures are higher or lower than others. Right. And the way you can tell is that someone who's experienced all of the kinds of pleasure will agree that with this ranking system. Right. And this comes down to the argument, it's better to be Socrates dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. Mm. It's better to be able to experience the higher pleasures, even if you are not satisfied, than to only be restricted to the lower pleasures, because the higher pleasures are that much better, right? Mm. So this means that if you are elevating people such that they can begin to experience the higher pleasures, even if they suffer a lot in the meantime, because you're unlocking the higher pleasures for them, their lower order suffering is potentially justifiable. And this results in Millian imperialism in Mill's idea that what Britain should do is go around and elevate, lift up populations all over the world so that they can experience higher pleasures. Hmm. And even though in the meantime, there will be a loss of liberty for them and there will be a lot of suffering for them because this will unlock in the future higher pleasures, because it will produce progress, the short-term suffering is justifiable. Yeah, it's something Jennifer Pitts points out in her book, Turn to Liberalism, which contrasts um, Bentham's more critical approach towards imperialism with Mill's more forthright advocacy of uh, empire in the modern world. Yeah, yeah. Now, Mill tries to qualify this to a point by, with, with his argument in On Liberty and his harm principle, right, that we should not coerce people when only they themselves will be harmed, but only when their behavior will cause harm to others, right? Now, of course, the harm principle can be read very widely or very narrowly, but of course, the purpose of the harm principle is to try to reconcile a commitment to liberty and free speech and free expression and so on 
with this commitment to utilitarianism, right? So some people look at utilitarianism and go, isn't this potentially a totalitarian theory? Because if any political decision can be justified based on uh, greatest good to the greatest number, then surely you can abridge the liberty of minorities quite frequently to accomplish that, right? Uh, it's not clear that the harm principle gets Mill out of Dodge on that because it's very easy to read human behavior as potentially having effects on other people, right? So to give one example, in Britain, often uh, drug policy is, is debated often on British television. And some people make the argument that the British state should not regulate drugs heavily because choosing to use drugs is one's own decision. And you know, based on the harm principle, what you decide to do with your own body is your own business. Other people use the harm principle to make precisely the opposite argument, like Peter Hitchens, who says, actually, if you use drugs, the principal uh, person you're affecting is your, your family members and your friends who are going to have to deal with the fact that you will be dysfunctional and unable to take care of yourself. Uh, or the state that will have to deal with the fact that you're dysfunctional and unable to take care of yourself. So that the question is, how widely do we interpret the harm principle? Because if we interpret it widely enough, anything anybody does potentially affects other people. We aren't, it's not very easy to straightforwardly separate people off into ego boxes where the things they do only affect themselves. And any distinction we make between the self and the other is a product of convention rather than reality. We're all part of the same universe. Anything anybody does affects everything else. You know, there's a butterfly effect to anything anybody does. So I think that the, the harm principle, because it's bendy in that way, doesn't really get Mill out of that problem. And when you see the result in imperialism, yet the progress argument really, really gets Mill deep into totalitarian social planning. Mm. And this becomes a continuous critique of utilitarian thinking. In the Frankfurt School, as we've discussed before, there's this critique of instrumental reason, which is very much a critique of utilitarian type thinking. And many of the Frankfurt School theorists kind of label this type of thinking as ultimately the cause of uh, fascism and totalitarian uh, capitalist systems, which evaluate everything in terms of a singular logic, which is which purports to be inclusive of all value, but which is actually excluding a lot of different values. Though Bentham is right? not um, as keen as Mill is on the kind of social engineering uh, that imperialism produces. <laughs> he is Though he does propose the panopticon. <laughs> yes, yes. Right. So Mill's, Mill's famous panopticon is a prison. Well, Bentham's famous where, panopticon. Yeah. Uh, excuse me, not... Not Mill, Bentham. Bentham's famous panopticon is a prison structure where one guard can, from an elevated turret, uh, look into all of the cells of all of the prisoners at once, right? And the prisoners don't know which cell this person is looking at at any given time. So it allows a prison that is pre-televisions, pre-monitoring technology to nonetheless give the prisoner the feeling that they're constantly being watched just by engineering this, this turret with line of sight into all of the cells, with the cells positioned in such a way that they're all visible from within the turret. Uh, 
and of course, Michel Foucault criticizes this as, well, criticizes is perhaps the wrong term. Michel Foucault observes that this is a kind of early iteration of a lot of disciplinary technology mm. that we've since developed to give people this feeling of of being accountable or being watched by something social. Which makes it puzzling uh, to some degree why Bentham is as um, critical as he is to a degree of some colonial practices. Uh, for Bentham, the British are impervious to the particular situation um, of Bengali society, and uh, thus the, the the application of British laws to uh, to India, he sees as uh, a recipe for uh, despotism uh, on the part of um, the Europeans. He asks, um, "What then must have been the sensations of the poor Hindu?" when forced to submit to all these wanton and ridiculous vexations, unable to attribute to a, a European mind the folly adequate to the production of such a mass of nonsense and of gibberish, he must have found himself compelled to ascribe it to a less pardonable cause, to a deliberate plan for forcing him to deliver himself up without reserve into the hands of the European professional bloodsuckers carrying on the traffic of injustice under the cloak of law. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's quite. A I, I do. I do agree with you on on that, uh, Edmund. That Bentham is definitely much, much less of an imperialist than Mill. Mm. And I think, to some degree, you can see when you read Bentham, you can see how this theory was pitched as a radical theory, yeah. and thought of by its early adherents as a, a type of radical politics. And if you look at a lot of the pre-1848 early socialists, a lot of them hung out with utilitarians. Yeah. There was quite a lot of intermixing between the utopian socialists and the utilitarians. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Oftentimes, people would cut, they would come together and, and write stuff together. There's a lot of, a lot of fraternizing. Yeah. Yeah. And there's something quite uh, radically democratic about Bentham's vision, um, because for Bentham, what matters is, um, you know, unlike Mill's later division between higher and lower pleasures, just pleasure itself. Um, and so for, for, for Bentham, um, um, pushpin, a children's game, can be as good as poetry, uh, because it can produce as much pleasure uh, in a child as as uh, poetry produces in an adult, and so for Bentham, it, um, you know, divisions of uh, age and uh, class and education are all uh, divisions which, uh, insofar as they can be justified, would have to be justified in terms of producing the greatest amounts of pleasure. And everybody has an equal right to pleasure as everybody else. And all pleasures are equal. And that, that equality of pleasure doesn't necessarily lead to uh, equality of persons. But because each person's pleasure matters, it, it can be seen as quite an egalitarian vision um, for um, distributing the fruits of commercial society to all. And I guess part of it is coming out of these luxury debates in the 18th century, um, which note how uh, the um, luxurious fruits of trade 
having been formally confined to um, wealthy landed aristocrats um, who had had enough wealth to purchase these these luxuries, can now be consumed by the whole population. Um, uh, which is why the conservative historian Niall Ferguson argues that um, the, the British Empire began on um, a, a rush of uh, sugar and caffeine um, uh, desires and uh, addictions, perhaps, um, and the, the distribution of the, the fruits of commercial society led to this this appetite to to expand. Um, and so Bentham himself might not be uh, defending imperialism as forthrightly as Mill does, but uh, he is in a sense defending part of the edifice of imperialism, which is the desires for luxuries which commercial society produces. To democratize luxury. Yes, to right? democratize so, luxury. And, and therefore to democratize pleasure. Yeah. The democratization of luxury and pleasure depends on the export of, of the exploitative imperial system. Yeah, yeah. So the radical element, of course, is everybody counts the same. Everybody's entitled to pleasure internally within Britain. Therefore, there's a kind of basis for an egalitarian politics. But the conservative element here is uh, because everybody is entitled to, to pleasure and the way you get pleasure is through these kinds of exploitative relations. Those kinds of exploitative relations also find justification insofar as they produce more pleasure later on. Yeah, yeah. I guess for Bentham, you know, in fairness to Bentham, he didn't just want um, people in in his own English society to have pleasure, because the principle of utility is a universal principle that applies to all times and all places. So everybody on the planet should have the fruits of luxury for Bentham. I mean, there's a sense in which Bentham's being a bit utopian, um, because the way in which commercial society has developed is by um, promoting the, the democratization of luxury in the core of the world economy um, on the back of uh, more poverty in the periphery. And this kind of goes back to Mandeville's point about how poverty and luxury are in a sense two sides of the same coin, and you often need one to get the other. You need to rob uh, some people in order to give other people more than they need. Um, well, and because utilitarianism, utilitarians are often committed to the idea that future people matter and future people count, not just presently existing people. Mm. You can make arguments based on some kind of progress narrative. And it doesn't just have to be from, say, ranking pleasures higher and lower. You could also say that, for instance, by having this very exploitative imperial system in the near term, you'll create a large enough economic surplus yeah. that then at some future point, you can distribute it in such a way that subsequent populations will be able to enjoy the benefits of that luxury more evenly. Yeah. But you can also make the you know, reverse I, I, argument yeah, that, 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 yeah. that you might need to have austerity in order to guarantee future luxury. So you can have utilitarian arguments for luxury, but also there are utilitarian arguments for austerity too. Yeah. And so all of this is to say that utilitarianism has got a lot of elements to it that often prove attractive to radicals. Uh, and people interested in egalitarianism, even insofar as they often now criticize utilitarianism for being insufficiently interested in the distribution. And utilitarians have some responses to that to do with um, the idea that, uh, oh, uh, what's it called? 
diminish diminishing returns. Mm. The idea that if you just keep giving the same person more and more pleasures, those pleasures will kind of have an inflationary effect and gradually they won't count for as much. And that in general, by nature, you get more pleasure out of elevating the experience of someone who is miserable rather than the experience of someone who's already reasonably well off. That there's much, it's much cheaper and easier to improve the life of someone who's miserable than someone who's already quite well off. Yeah. Utilitarians make that argument. But this egalitarian distributive argument, even insofar as it attempts to get away from utilitarianism, still rests on some premises which utilitarianism did a lot to advance, like the idea that everybody counts the same. Right? Because utilitarianism views all people as bearers of pleasures and pains, it isn't very nationalist. It doesn't really respect community boundaries. It doesn't really have any truck with the idea that specific territories are entitled to more pleasure than others. Mill was never able to argue for imperialism on the grounds that people in India were less entitled to pleasure than Britons. He was only able to argue for it on the grounds that imperialism would somehow in the long run bring more pleasure to future generations of Indians. Hmm. Right? So... Very, very divergent and conflicting elements here. When you're thinking about utilitarianism, it can be easy to just think of it as this emancipatory radical thing or as this totalitarian conservative thing. But it has lots of different elements in it flowing through it all the time, right? Uh, Another problem pointed out by Sidgwick himself, a utilitarian, is this conflict between the ego and the total, right? So if you're thinking in terms of pleasure and pain, if you're someone who goes, well, I experience the pleasures and pains that are my own directly, I don't experience the pleasures and pains of other people in the same way. So why should I care about the pleasures and pains other people have, given that I don't experience them in the same way, right? Now, The traditional utilitarian response is, well, surely you recognize that their pleasures and pains are the same as yours, even though you don't experience them directly. And so shouldn't we, if we're trying to be impartial or objective in some sense, shouldn't a society or a state care equally about those pleasures and pains? But the egoist doesn't accept this premise that we're trying to be objective Hmm. or impartial. And what Sidgwick kind of points out is if you have an egotist who feels this way, there isn't really very much you can say to the egotist. All you can do is try to appeal to an intuition that we ought to care about other people's pleasures and pains if they're the same as our own, if we wish to be impartial or objective. And the egotist lacks that intuition in the first instance. Mm. So Sidgwick spent quite a bit of time wrestling with this because he thought of it as a quite significant problem. And I do think it's an issue for utilitarianism and potentially a bigger one than is widely recognized. Mm. And I think it's one that even a lot of contemporary utilitarians have not really dealt with. And this is because of utilitarianism's tendency to view the good as adding up parts, right? So you add up the pleasures and pains of particular people and you add those people up and that gives you the total for society, right? So it's an addition, and it's based on a kind of micro-foundational view that these units of pleasure and pain are the fundamental building blocks. Yes. 
hedons, as and, it's sometimes called. You're right. <laughs> and the people are the fundamental receptacles, the individual persons, right? Uh. And so there isn't really in utilitarianism any concept of society or any concept of polity or community. Mm. It doesn't really come into it. Now, some people view that as emancipatory because it is a basis for making a global redistribution argument. But I think conversely, it also has to be considered that this leaves you with no real proper way of responding to egotists, right? And the, the way that ancient theorists would respond to an egotist is to say, well, actually, we are dependent on cities, communities, collectivities to get any benefits at all, that outside of those collectivities, we would be beasts, right? And therefore, we owe something to those cities. And those cities should try to shape us in such a way that we recognize that we owe something to them. And if we fail to recognize that we owe something to our community, then the appropriate response from the community is disciplinary action. Hmm. Right? That's the way ancient people tend to negotiate this, because for ancient people, the individual can't exist outside of the collective. And therefore, when we're talking about what's good and bad, we can't talk about the individual in isolation in a very meaningful way. Because the individual's goodness or badness depends upon existing in a community which supports the positive development of that individual, right? And therefore, the individual is not detachable from the kind of community in which that individual grew up and, and sprouted. Yeah. Right? Because utilitarianism doesn't recognize polities and communities as uh, as existing things, because polities and communities do not seem to themselves be the bearers of pleasures and pains, mm. because they're not reducible to those hedon units, yeah. uh, they're not treated as real by utilitarianism. And I think this has had a significant influence on, on anarchism and libertarianism. And caused a lot of political trouble uh, in both conservative and radical directions, mm. right? So, and, and that's the thing. There's anarchism and there's libertarianism. There's both conservative and radical directions that you can take this, but they share in common this micro-foundational attachment to the individual as the bearer of pleasures and pains. Mm. And that makes it very difficult to argue with real committed egotists, mm. right? Very difficult. So that's an issue that Sidgwick brings up, and I think it's still largely unresolved. Derek Parfit talks about this, this debate that Sidgwick was having, and Parfit ultimately says that, well, if you're being an egotist, you're just not engaging in moral thinking. You just refuse to be interested in morality, and we can't really do anything about that. I don't think Derek Parfit solves that problem. Parfit, who I think did a lot to help utilitarians with a lot of issues, uh, did not address that, in my view. Hmm. Uh, well, he, he, he now, did discuss another, it, but he didn't resolve it. Focus, yeah, he, yeah, he discussed it, but he doesn't fix yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, because he still calls and it the Ultimately, the problem. utilitarians throw up their hands at egotists. They go, well, if you're Hume's sensible knave, we can't do anything with you. And I think that, by the way, prior to Bentham, Hume is the nearest thing you can have to a progenitor for utilitarianism, pre-Bentham. And Hume has this same issue with the sensible knave. What do we do with the sensible knave? What do we do with the person who just uh, views themselves as, as separate? And the issue is because the theory itself views people as separate, there is no way that it can 
reply. Aristotle would have a simple reply. Outside the city, you're either a beast or a god. The only reason you're not a beast is that you're in a city. So whatever is good about you is itself reflective of the collective. Mm. Right? That's a straightforward, easy, ancient retort. Utilitarianism can't make that kind of reply because of the way it's ontologically structured. Mm. So there's that issue. Now, trying to get away from, from Mill, right, because Mill in trying to solve the problems that Mill thought existed in Bentham arguably creates bigger and worse problems for utilitarianism mm. by setting up this hierarchy of pleasures. Uh, now you've gotten away from hedonism, but mm. you've, you've got a whole architecture for justifying imperial behavior yeah. and a very controversial way of ranking pleasures that people find in many ways, I think Mill's argument causes a lot of people to regard utilitarianism as silly. Yeah. Right? Bentham's argument is clear and straightforward, and a lot of people are unsatisfied by the hedonism, but at least it's a clear, straightforward position. Mill, by introducing a hierarchy which is picked by elites who have had the benefits of experiencing all the pleasures, that position, I think, strikes more people as straightforwardly silly. Mm. And so there was a need in utilitarianism to come up with a different way of dealing with the hedonism problem. Yeah. And it kind of proves and that the, empiricism isn't necessarily egalitarian because you could make the argument, as Mill does, that, well, some people have experienced more things than others. So let's give those people power and other people can, can, can uh, obey. Uh, and so there are empiricist justifications for hierarchy because people often associate rationalism with hierarchy. Uh, from Plato right. onwards. Empiricism is not necessarily democratic. It can be technocratic. And Mill's yeah. argument is very technocratic. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Because who's going to have the experience of the different kinds of pleasures? Well, it's probably going to be people who have had access to philosophy. And those are going to be rich aristocrats, especially in Mill's context of 19th century Britain. Yeah, yeah. It's a peculiarly right? aristocratic liberalism, I guess. And Mill is keen always to say that what we should be emphasizing is knowledge or epistemic qualities rather than money. But in practice, these things go together in a society where learning is tied to wealth. It must be said that actual defenders of um, pre-capitalist social formations, perhaps like Edmund Burke, who mourns the decline of chivalric values in his reflections on the revolution in France, um, Burke is a bit like Bentham in being more critical of imperial practices than um, Mill is. Um, and th th there is- a, And some of this uh, reflects the, the changing class position of the bourgeoisie in British society. Yeah. Yeah, in the period of, of uh, Bentham, there is not yet political dominance for this rising class, which is mainly mercantile and therefore mainly interested in trading goods which are associated with pleasure and pain. Mm. Uh, that class by Mill's period is much more ascendant and therefore much more part of the establishment. And it's interesting to see how Mill tries to maintain some of the radicalism of utilitarianism as he transforms it into a more establishment theory uh, in his attempts to argue with Marxists and argue that utilitarianism can provide uh, certain kinds of minimum necessary. Uh, I think at, at one point Mill even proposes giving people 
a sum of money when they reach adulthood as a way of leveling the playing field or giving them an opportunity to to get access to pleasures to which they might have previously been denied. Yes, yes. So there, there are some efforts to try to keep this theory kind of radical feeling. Yeah. And he also but, foretells the um, rise in cooperative thinking um, by describing how perhaps enterprises someday will be run by the workers and not just by the owners of capital. So th- there is even a bit of um, syndicalism in um, Mill's liberal thought. Especially the late later period Mill. Yeah. Mill late in his life tries quite hard to keep utilitarianism dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. But you can see the difference in the period of Bentham and immediately following Bentham. There's a lot of, of it, radical socialist and utilitarian intermixing and intermingling. In the Bentham period, Marx and the utilitarians are very separated from each other. Um, and the socialist tradition, as it becomes more Marxist, becomes less amenable to utilitarianism. Mm. Uh, and I mean, this analysis of imperialism as the product of the bourgeoisie coming to political power was made, um, in a sense, by Hobson at the beginning of the 20th century, and I think put quite clearly by Hannah Arendt, who identifies um, imperialism as one of the springs of totalitarianism, um, because Hannah Arendt claims in the chapter on uh, the political emancipation of the bourgeoisie, um, says that imperialism must be considered the first stage in political rule of the bourgeoisie, rather than the last stage of capitalism, which is uh, Lenin's idea of imperialism being the, the ultimate uh, culmination of capitalism. Um, and Arendt has some benefit of hindsight here. Um, and yeah, yeah. I, yeah, it highlights as a fringe theory in its early radical stages, utilitarianism can often be used for critical purposes. But utilitarianism is designed in such a way that if it does become dominant, it very quickly can start to feel very oppressive. Yeah. And one other thing that Arendt says, which I think is quite helpful here in the political implications of this, is that, quote, when in the era of imperialism, businessmen became politicians and were acclaimed as statesmen, uh, while statesmen were taken seriously only if they talked the language of successful businessmen and thought incontinence, these private practices and devices were gradually transformed into rules and principles for the conduct of public affairs. So, in a sense, Arendt is saying how this private uh, sphere, this commercial society, um, which can be traced back to the uh, late 17th and uh, early 18th century, in the 19th century and early 20th century projects itself back onto the public sphere and the values that were developing in this um, capitalistic private sphere uh, with imperialism get projected back onto the public sphere, back onto the state. And we see, I think, politics getting, in a sense, privatized. And we see the first vision of of private politics, which is, in a sense, to say... um, liberal capitalist politics, um, with um, imperialism in particular. Yeah. And 
I think a lot of the critiques of Britishness that you hear from continental theorists from Germany and France, they're very often critiques of utilitarianism. When Napoleon calls the British a nation of shopkeepers, <laughs> yeah. uh, or, or when, when Mill is derided as vulgar by uh, various German theorists yeah. uh, who were contemporary of him. This is a critique of the kind of, of utilitarian moral reasoning which privileges pleasure. Yeah. Right. And for the for the, a lot of the German theorists, as we've discussed previously, this is a period where there's a collapse in agreement on value and therefore a plurality of different values. Right. The approach in Britain is very much to try to subordinate everything to the principle of utility and in this way, set up a new value as the as the king value. Yeah. Right. Now, the the clever thing about utilitarianism is is the the monism right so yeah as we start to move into the 20th century and especially into the second half of the 20th century utilitarians will try to broaden out the principle of utility not by creating a hierarchy of pleasures but by saying that anything you know it doesn't have to just be pleasure anything you value can be converted to utility in some way Right, so they set up utility as a kind of universal currency of value. Right now, this gives a little bit of, on the straightforwardness of Bentham's view, because now utility gets more nebulous and starts to look more like the good in more antique theories. Right, so in this way, utilitarianism starts to move away from the simplicity of its original position, which was its chief advantage originally. Mm. towards something which looks more like an antique conception of the good. And it does this by gradually broadening out what counts as utility to try to subsume other values into the utilitarian framework. Or doing what right? Derek Parfit does and straightforwardly fuse utilitarianism with um, Kantianism um, and with contractualism too. So trying to draw on um, uh, a lot of different tendencies in modern moral philosophy. Um, yeah. yeah. From the point of view of the Germans or the French, the utili utilitarianism is the Borg, okay? And, you know, the Borg from Star Trek, <laughs> the, the collective consciousness which assimilates everything and turns it all into itself. But the right? irony is that includes the uh, French and German conceptions of the good in the modern world, that nowhere is really exempt from this stuff because you've got commercial society arising all around the place, you could argue it's at different paces um, and in, done, therefore, in different ways and with different levels of state management. But the commonality here is that they're all responding to the changes wrought by the modern cycle of war and trade to how we think about and the good. And how different is it really from German and French theories, which are trying to subsume pluralities under the management of the state? You know, saying, oh, yes, you can have all sorts of different values as long as they are all managed by the state and point at reifying the, the nation state and don't challenge the nation state as the dominant political form. Uh, how different is it really to, as we've been seeing in the recent debate in France uh, with Macron about Islam, where Macron has been trying to subject Islam to French state regulation. Uh, the idea that you can believe in all sorts of different values, not just utility, but all of those values have to be to some degree overseen by the French state or overseen by the German state and regulated so that they will aim at 
preserving that state and the pluralism which that state protects. That that seems like a pluralism, but it's not it's not as pluralistic as it purports to be. Yeah. In much the same way that utilitarianism it, you know, purports to include everything but doesn't really. And I think that this is one of the big fundamental hypocrisies of the modern state in the Western world, that the modern state claims to support plurality while at the same time crushing to some degree everything into something which is amenable to capitalism or nationalism or you know, liberal nationalism more broadly. Uh, and while the utilitarians are often accused of being the big bad by Germans, uh, German and French theorists, you can make the same kinds of arguments from the Anglo point of view back at the German and French traditions. Mm. Yeah, so I, I wouldn't. Yeah, while I'm I'm presenting some of these different arguments that are made, I wouldn't say that any one of these traditions has got it worse than the others. It just is constructed differently based on how political theory came about in the specific context. Yeah. But but to kind of move move uh, forward a little yeah. bit with uh, Peter Singer and preference utilitarianism, right? So Singer's approach to this problem of of hedonism is to say that well, really, what we're what we're doing is is we're talking about preferences, what people desire, right? Mm. Uh, now this this makes the pleasure and pain thing very very subjective, right? So it's it's very much based on what naturally people happen to prefer or happen to desire, right? So that original problem I mentioned of, of reifying the status quo and of treating whatever people happen to find painful or pleasurable as what is, is good or bad for them is very much in preference utilitarianism because it takes people's preferences seriously and treats them as their own rather than something which is socially produced. Right, and that comes back into this issue in utilitarianism that we that, that utilitarians are treating individuals as units, as as bearers of pleasures and pains, distinct from and separate from communities and polities. Right, so in preference utilitarianism, the individual's preferences are taken extremely seriously because the individual isn't treated as an output of a community or a part of a whole, but as a distinct bearer of pleasures and pains, mm. right? And the emphasis on preferences makes it clear just how subjective this particular type of, of moral theory can be. Because if we're just talking about what people happen to want, well, people could want anything, right? Mm. And this is something that bothers Derek Parfit. So Derek Parfit also has a quite consequentialist, utilitarian-influenced view. But Derek Parfit is bothered by these concessions to preference, because for Parfit, well, people could prefer to waste their lives. People could prefer uh, all sorts of terrible things. And at this point, the moral theory isn't really defending us against very bad preferences, right? At least when it was pleasure and pain, you could say that whatever you happen to prefer, this is going to hurt people. But if we broaden it out to preferences to try to include other criteria apart from pleasure and pain, now the theory just looks straightforwardly whatever it is that people happen to want, that's what's good for them. And now it's not really a moral theory. It's just describing what people happen to want. Yeah. Right? Pleasure and pain was, was to some degree based on this conflation of what people want with what's good for them. But at least pleasure and pain define these things to some degree separately from whatever it is people might happen to want. If someone wants something which is going to hurt them, Bentham's theory can say that they've made a mistake. But on a preference satisfaction theory, you can't even say that that's a mistake. Mm. 
right? So this bothers bothers Derek Parfit a lot. And when Derek Parfit writes on what matters, he he writes this book largely to solve this problem. Hmm. And the way he solves it is by integrating elements of uh, Kantian and deontological thinking into utilitarianism, and conversely, by injecting a lot of utilitarianism into uh, Kantian thought. And in this way, Parfit tries to construct a kind of mesh between the Anglo-utilitarian tradition and the more continental uh, Kantian tradition. Of course, the Kantians that he's reading are primarily not German Kantians, but uh, often American Kantians influenced by the rise of John Rawls in the United States. So the, the Kantian tradition has come into the, the uh, Anglo world uh, to a significant degree through Rawls recently. And the utilitarians are intermingling with that now and mixing in elements of it into their own thinking. Uh, and conversely, they're trying to influence that tradition with utilitarianism. So Rawls, even though in a theory of justice, he sets up a theory of justice as an explicitly anti-utilitarian work. And many of the Kantians who, uh, neo-Kantians who follow Rawls are very keen on opposing and rejecting consequentialist and, and utilitarian thinking. Uh, Parfit is nonetheless trying to integrate them. And he describes the need to integrate them as, as uh, you know, climbing the mountain, the, the need for everybody to be kind of trying to get to the same place yeah. and therefore to not work in silos, but to be trying to find points of commonality and to come together towards some kind of unity or synthesis. Yeah. Now, of course, uh, the, the way that this gets resolved for Parfit is that Parfit says that the good is not a natural thing. Yeah. Right, that the good is a non-natural thing, and therefore that there is a difference between saying what someone is motivated to do and what it would be good for someone to do. Yeah. Right. Now, Parfit doesn't want to posit the good existing in some ideal metaphysical realm as you know good particles, right, or moral particles, or what Ronald Dworkin likes to call morons, uh, <laughs> moral particles that exist in some other other world. Parfit wants to say that the good exists in, in a, a different sense from that, that it's not something which is metaphysical, but that it exists in a way similar to the way that numbers exist. Numbers don't exist in material reality, but they have uh, a conceptual reality in some way, shape, or form, some mm -hmm. kind of, of less, less ontologically thick reality, right? So this non-natural moral realism that comes out of Parfit, and which, by the way, is quite similar to the view which G.E. Moore advanced yes. many, many decades earlier, it is, yeah. uh, takes, takes the utilitarian tradition a lot closer to something resembling uh, old antique conceptions of the good. The difference being that Parfit is very keen to resist the idea that the good that exists in some kind of realm of the forms or ethereal metaphysical realm, right? Uh, in the way that a lot of Neoplatonists argued that it did, that it was part of reality, right? Now, I don't think that that's necessarily the position of Plato himself. Uh, I think that that involves an overly literalist reading of, of the Timaeus uh, by Plato. But nonetheless, because so many people have adopted this view that there is literally some kind of 
of metaphysical moral realm. Parfit is quite keen to distance himself from that position. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the result of this is that utilitarianism under Derek Parfit has more or less eliminated most of the distinctive things that came into it through Bentham. <laughs> uh, utilitarians now say, well, pleasure and pain is, of course, an important part of what's good, but it's not all of it. Yeah. They almost all uniformly say that now. Yeah. And many of them do think that to some degree, rules and principles are important. Rules and principles, which where would they come out of in practice and in, in real life? Oftentimes rules come down to us from politics. Uh, that said, there are still some important ways in which even the very, very modern utilitarians are still very distinctly very modern. Right. So, of course, one is this issue with the ego that we talked about with Sedgwick. The other way that it's modern is its reluctance to do politics. Right. So, if you look at Singer and Parfit, both made a lot of arguments, and Singer continues to make arguments for what's called effective altruism. Right. So, the idea behind effective altruism is that political action is so unpredictable and so often useless that instead of engaging in political action, we ought to directly attempt to make the world better by individual charitable acts, yeah, right? Yeah. So this, I think, comes out of this problem with the individual and the community, which utilitarianism has continuously had uh, and which Sidgwick points to. Because utilitarianism doesn't really view collectives as real, it really gives very short shrift to political approaches and strategies. Right? The fact that political approaches are unlikely to manifest in policy which reshapes individual behavior, you know, unless you get quite lucky, causes them to more or less throw them out because they don't see our behavior as produced by communities and polities and structures. They see our behavior as the result of individual moral choices that are either in line with utilitarian principles or not in line with those principles. Mm. Right? So, the utilitarian strategy for making the world a better place is to go around trying to convince people of particular kinds of moral arguments and to get people to modify their behavior on the basis of those arguments. And we see this, the, the causes that effective altruism has tended to uh, get most interested in is, say, effective giving, rating charities by how efficient they are at improving or saving lives based on utilitarian criteria. They've gotten very interested in trying to persuade people to become vegan or to stop eating meat. They've gotten very interested in trying to persuade people to live in a more sustainable way that's more environmentally friendly, right? And the way this works is by going from person to person individually and trying to persuade them of moral arguments and to change their behavior on the basis of those arguments. Of course, the issue with this is that our behavior is not just the product of whatever it is we agree to in principle. Our behavior is the product of big picture social influences, big picture structural incentives that come out of states, that come out of international systems, that come out of capitalism, right? And if you don't touch this stuff, there's a, a limit to what you're going to be able to accomplish by going around and persuading people. A, the people that you're going to be able to persuade are people who are going to have access to this kind of discourse. So they're going to be people who generally have more cultural capital. 
and B, it tends to produce a lot of moral snobbery and snootishness and looking down on people and, and condescending to people who don't embrace the argument or aren't familiar with the argument. And that can produce a backlash and a reaction which can be counterproductive. Uh, so you, this, this reluctance to be political, I think, comes fundamentally out of the very individualist way in which utilitarianism constructs what counts as good. And I think it has that in common with the pre-Marxist uh, bourgeois socialists, this heavy, heavy emphasis on the individual and just lack of any real place in the theory for collectivity apart from voluntary individual small associations. Yeah. And this has been the Achilles heel, I think, of utilitarianism. Uh, throughout its existence, whatever you want to say about any of the other arguments it makes, and there are all sorts of things you can say about all these other aspects of it, utilitarians have tried to deal with these different aspects. And I think Derek Parfit in particular has done a rather impressive job with most of the traditional problems that the theory has had. Yeah. But the one problem that remains uh, really striking is this individual collective problem. And it manifests most straightforwardly with this fixation on effective altruism and individual acts. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of ironic because utilitarianism initially, with a focus on pleasures and pains, um, being what morality is reducible to, um, seemed to be a way of defending um, commercial society and its uh, consequent uh, luxuries um, and which can of course be traced back to Mandeville's fable of the bees the subtitle of which is uh, private vices public benefits um, and this gets in a way reiterated by uh, Smith's argument for market society um, through the notion of the invisible hand, that individuals may uh, behave from selfish motives or from Mandeville's private vices, but the effect of this in market society is for everybody to develop because when people are um, responding to their own wants uh, and desires uh, through the laws of supply and demand, everybody will get what they need um, because some people uh, desiring luxuries means that a lot of other people can get jobs to produce those luxuries um, and get salaries for those jobs so that they can then buy themselves luxuries and everybody gets uh, um, the maximum possible utility that they can that they can get um, but the ironic turn with later utilitarian thought to um, effective altruism is that instead of there being a split between um, private immorality and uh, public uh, expediency, uh, we get a shift to private morality um, and public expediency and immorality, which is in a sense... Um, harking um, back to the division that um, Machiavelli and some of his immediate successes made between the um, 
political sphere um, to which morality does not apply and uh, a private sphere by implication where morality uh, does apply. Um, and for instance, um, Mon Montaigne following um, Machiavelli in a way, seeing that politics is quite Machiavelli, Machiavellian um, in the early modern period, um, says that while uh, reason of state might justify um, as a public necessity betray betrayal and the telling of lies, um, these can be rejected in their private capacity. Um, and so he says at the beginning of his essays, uh, this book was written in good faith, reader. It warns you from the outset that in it I have set myself no goal but a domestic and private one. I have uh, had no thought of serving either uh, you or my own glory. My powers are inadequate for such a purpose. Um, and he also says that our wills and desires are laws unto themselves, but our public actions must accept law as ordained by the state. So we get this division between the vices of the public sphere and the virtues which we can try to nourish um, as private individuals. But this gets inverted um, in the 18th century when commercial society um, uh, makes the private sphere itself a sphere of immorality. So we first get Machiavellianism in the public sphere, um, which demoralizes the political. And then we get economic Machiavellianism resulting from commercial society, which demoralizes the private sphere. And so we get this uh, game of hot potato, or where does morality belong? Does it belong in the private sphere? Does it belong in the public sphere? And uh, neither sphere is willing to take ownership fully of what morality is. And so morality progressively gets watered down um, such that it just becomes a, a simple matter of what we feel um, about certain people, our feelings of sympathy, um, as Hume and Smith argue, um, rather than something nobler than that. And even with Kant, morality is something um, that requires individual free will. It becomes dependent on something um, private. And when it gets applied back onto the public sphere um, with the notion of nations as being like individuals, as being uh, free and independent, that this leads to um, the extension of a notion of private morality in, in the public sphere. But never do we get anything too fleshed out that we can properly call morality, because this game of hot potato never ends. Because when you divide the private from the public spheres, you're never quite sure how to live a good life. Um, because you're always forced to live a double life, a Jekyll and a Hyde. Um, and it's never quite possible to um, bring these things together in uh, what Ernst Frankel calls the dual state of modernity, a state characterized by, by doubleness, where we can never truly um, achieve a balance because we're trying to balance things which have been separated, torn asunder by war on the, other on the one hand and trade on the other hand. Yes, as the Eastern philosophers like to say, it's important to be non-dual. Mm. Yeah, right. and the alternative to the dual state is the whole state, the state as a whole, 
which includes the parts within it and pays attention to those parts. So even the separation between whole and part is not something which um, which ancient or Eastern philosophy would make. And that's why they often like to say instead of oneness, uh, non-dual is yeah. a way of emphasizing that it's not even not even that distinction. Or perhaps wholeness be would be another way of putting it. But yeah, non-dual is certainly. No, but then, even then you could say whole and part. Non-dual <laughs> completely eliminates any possibility of erecting a new well, dualism. It's deep holism. So the difference here between the modern and ancient concepts of the whole is that the modern concept of a whole is a, is a shallow unity, whereas the ancient or Eastern concept of whole is a is a deep unity, a deep wholeness that includes the part within it. The whole and the part are one. Yeah. So to, to bring it back to utilitarianism, I think that one of the things that makes utilitarianism attractive, especially to young people, is its demandingness compared to a lot of other moral theories that are prevalent now, it's very demanding. It requires major lifestyle changes, major changes in your consumer behavior. Well, if we take this Peter Singer version of utilitarianism, which is perhaps different than the Jeremy Bentham radical political version, where politics itself must be transformed to maximize utility. Yes, yes. I don't think we have very many Benthamite utilitarians around anymore. But this, this effective altruism-influenced utilitarianism is very demanding, yeah. right? Now, you mentioned Mandeville, and I think this is a great way to bring this full circle. When we started with people like Mandeville and people like Hume and people like Montesquieu, the aim of what we were doing is we're going, wait a minute, we don't have people who are great and wonderful people. And therefore, we need a kind of politics which accommodates the lack of moral perfection. Yeah, yeah in human beings, yeah. right? So we need some kind of way of balancing people against each other because they don't have the virtue to be self-restraining, yeah. right? And so a big part of the reason we came off of the heavily virtue ethics influenced forms of political theory was this belief, and you know, Montesquieu expresses it very well in the Persian letters, that virtue is just not very obtainable. And it's not very realistic to expect uh, the political system to be driven by virtue, mm. right? But now, in effective altruism, we have an expectation that people will privately develop, independent of the state, not just moral behavior, but that they will begin to act morally in accordance with an extremely demanding theory, right? and completely change their lives in all sorts of ways. They'll give away a large percentage of their income to people in the developing world voluntarily. They'll quit eating meat. They'll quit polluting. They'll really, really change the way they live. And they're meant to do this on their own without the state leading them toward these values in any way, that it will just come out of moral philosophical discourse and there will just be a discourse war waged in the culture yeah. to get these moral principles out there. And that not only will those moral principles get out there, but then enough people will embrace them and follow them that we'll get the equivalent of a revolutionary change in the way we live. Yeah, yeah. Right? Now, from the point of view of 18th century thought, the idea that you could get people, uh, especially early 18th century thought, the idea that you could get people to just be good enough was rubbish. Right. And it was rubbish because ancient virtue was a very demanding thing. And by the time that we get to the 18th century, 
people like Montesquieu are going, we just don't have this level of virtue. We just don't have it, right? Yeah. Now, the moral theories that come in to replace the virtue ethics start by watering down what's required of you considerably. Yeah. Right? They water it down a lot to the point where you can start to imagine that maybe people can become this good in the private sphere without the state having to lead them toward the good, right? Mm. But what's happened is that once morality is privatized, then people start making it more demanding again. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think it's just been that morality has gotten less and less demanding. Quite the, quite the contrary. First, morality was made very undemanding and locked into the private sphere. And then it became very demanding. But it's locked in the private sphere. So because it's, it's locked in this realm of, of culturally persuading individuals to do things, it isn't able to affect the political changes to which it's committed. But what it does produce is spiraling guilt and shame and blame and condescension and, and culture war yeah. as people become more and more frustrated with themselves and each other for failing to live up to an impossible morality. And the morality is impossible because it's privatized and makes no effort to interface with the state yeah. and therefore lacks the organizational power of the state, which would otherwise make it possible for more people to realize the principles in question. Yeah. And is it, isn't it ironic that um, while the notions of private morality um, that emerged after the uh, apparent decimation of um, public morality by the religious wars of the early um, modern period um, led people like Michel de Montaigne to argue that um, you know, he said, amongst other vices, I cruelly hate uh, cruelty, uh, both by nature and judgment, as the very extreme of all vices. But because Montaigne is retreating into the private sphere, um, he declares in order to make these moral claims, um, he is, in a sense, uh, in a, at the top of this um, this water slide, which leads to the present day. Uh, culture wars where cruelty itself becomes becomes a way of making private morality effective and i i guess in this way you know, people always attribute um the re rejection of morality following machiavelli's the prince and uh, of course while disregarding um his more complex text uh, discourses on livy um People associate this kind of institutionalized immorality with the public sphere, with politics, as shown by the British and the American versions of House of Cards about Machiavellian politicians. We forget how Machiavellianism, uh, a long time ago, as far back as the 18th century, was starting to be applied to the economic sphere because, um, it, in a sense, it's resulting from a similar process. Machiavellianism initially was the result of warfare in the early modern period, but then uh, this public Machiavellianism was tied to a private Machiavellianism resulting from a process similar to war, which is trade. And trade, as a lot of these commercial thinkers in the 18th century argued, and as Istvan Hunt notes in his survey of this literature, 
you know, jealousy of trade, these writers realised how trade was somewhat warlike and that competition for profit is uh, similar to competition over resources in a military way, with the exception that it is um, at least not as obviously a matter of life and death as war is. Now, as Marx argued, there is a sense in which there is a life and death uh, issue at the heart of trade, because if the worker, Marx argues, does not sell their labour power to the capitalist, then their means of subsistence are withdrawn and therefore their means of living is uh, threatened. But because this, in a way, precisely because this choice is so obvious that it scarcely needs vocalising most of the time, um, trade is not necessarily as immediately deadly to people's lives as war is. Um, because in a sense, what is at issue in trade most of the time is pleasure versus pain. Whereas in warfare, it is more straightforwardly an issue of life and death. And in a sense, what utilitarianism is, is the equivalent of what Hobbesianism was. Hobbes's philosophy is based on uh, life and death being the equivalents of good and evil. And the reason why life and death for Hobbes is the basis of um, morality um, is that he was living not only in the context of um, religious wars across Europe, but he was writing Leviathan um, at the end of the English Civil War and seeing how warfare uh, is so deadly and so horrific. Um, it is very easy to build a morality which says that death is the ultimate evil which must be avoided at all costs. Whereas trade, because it's not necessarily always threatening one's life, it is um, more generally threatening um, you with uh, extreme pain rather than the threat of death, uh, leads to a morality that puts uh, pleasure and pain as the markers of good and evil. Uh, and in a way, what's similar between um, Hobbes's theory and the theories of um, Bentham and Mill is that they are both ways of justifying the tendencies of modern society to accelerate those most fundamental selective pressures in history, warfare and trade. Mm. Well, and I think that that's a big part of why utilitarianism has always been amenable to trade. Yeah. Utilitarianism, by not recognizing polities and communities, uh, is always emphasizing more global yeah. integration, more economic integration. Yeah. And by arguing that we can make it all good by taking the money that we're paid by the system and giving it away charitably to the people in need – that that can be done on an individual by individual basis. Yeah. It reifies the structure of the whole thing and makes the structure of the whole thing more acceptable to and people. The, the, yeah. If you are someone yeah. who is giving away all of your income, yeah. uh, then you can feel like you're not part of the problem. Yeah, yeah. And in that way, it becomes a form of political quietism. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And in a way, today with coronavirus, we're seeing this uh, dichotomy uh, in the modern dual state become clearer. Um, then we've seen it for a while, because while world war has not afflicted the earth uh, 
thankfully, for some decades now. And uh, you know, long may that remain the case, though many parts of the world are afflicted by wars of various sorts. What coronavirus is, is a is a form of, and a lot of the language of politicians um, in the beginning of this year, in March and April, suggested this, it is something like a war. Because um, you know, like war, what it is threatening is life itself. And it is putting life and death issues at more of a the forefront. Now, of course, there are a lot of things in, in the modern world besides warfare and viruses that threaten people's lives. Uh, but coronavirus, like warfare, is something which makes it more obvious, um, partly because- It's first degree rather than second degree. Yes, right? yes. Yeah, there's a degree of removal with economic stuff because people don't see the system as straightforwardly killing people. Yes. There are extra steps involved. Yes, yes. Um, for instance, when people try to calculate the deaths wrought by uh, austerity, say by the UK government in the early 2010s, you know, while you know, uh, the um, British Medical Journal published a study suggesting that um, upwards of 100,000 people uh, died as a result of austerity, it's still a political argument that is uh, less effective than discussing deaths wrought by coronavirus because that's something that very very direct. Um, whereas austerity is something on some level. Line. Yeah, I think on on some level, a lot of people feel that it doesn't count if it's not direct. Yes, a lot of people are unwilling to count deaths as caused by something unless they're directly caused by it. It's kind of like in in basketball. There's a statistic called the assist. Right, you get an assist if you pass the ball to somebody and they score. Right now, if you pass the ball to somebody and they pass it to somebody else and they score, uh, even if you're the one who kicked all of that off and saw that your pass would lead to that other pass, uh, you don't get the assist. Mm. In much the same way, in our society, once there's more than one step removed, it becomes difficult for people to continue to identify the causation. And I think a lot of that has to do with how much we tend to view reality and modernity as broken into bits and pieces. And we're very, very reluctant to identify causation because causation is to draw a relationship, an abstract relationship between two different bits or pieces. Yeah. yeah. Right? And we're very skeptical of abstract relationships yes. on, in modernity. Uh, very, very reluctant. And people will tell you that you can't draw a, cause a causal relation unless you have, you have to meet a very, very high level of burden <laughs> of proof, which as soon as you're a couple of steps out, you simply can't well, meet. An example of this would be the um, contrast between the response to climate change and the response to coronavirus. While states have mobilized in a massive and unprecedented way uh, to respond to coronavirus, um, they are not mobilizing in nearly the same way to respond to climate change, uh, though there are accidental ways in which responding to coronavirus um, shapes the world's response to climate change. Uh, there isn't the same level of direct response to climate change because it's not as seemingly direct a threat. Um, and the media is not talking about it every day in the same terms that it talks about coronavirus. These days, to say that everything affects everything else is is now itself a radical or subversive statement. <laughs> yeah, we're we're so far removed from thinking about the universe as a universe that uh, 
we get stopped in our tracks rather well, fast. It's a pl- yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of when uh, right after the 2016 election, there was this whole debate about whether racism caused Trump to win or whether it was economic insecurity that caused Trump to win. And the debate, of course, missed the point entirely that economic insecurity and racism are related to one another. Mm. And that these mm. things are not completely independent causal forces that either it's one or it's the other. Yeah. But this is the, the kind of logic of social science quantitative research, which is trying to identify specific things as causal. Yeah, yeah. And and the difficulty is any variable you have, more likely than not, your variables will affect each other. Well, yeah. And the thing is that... Um on the one hand, there's a difficulty when we fail to combine different causal links, when we fail to balance different um, considerations. But there's also the need to prioritize and to prioritize which things are doing the most causal work or which things are the deeper causes and which things are more proximate causes or catalysts of an event. And it's very easy to um, tend towards too much imbalance, too much focus on one thing. But it's also easy. Um, it's less easy, but it's also perhaps a mistake to say that everything uh, has you know equal causal power to list factors for an event oh, and yes, not to give priority. Yes. And perhaps that's a great. What we point. need is both. We need balanced priorities. We need ban- We need to balance different considerations, but we also need to prioritize. Uh, we need to, in a way, yeah, find a meta balance between balance itself and priority balanced priorities. Yeah. Yes. And again, that's one of those dualisms, which is so unhelpful. People will either treat causation as a very fixed one-to-one thing, or they will treat everything as connected in a way where no causal patterns are identifiable, no predictions can be made. And that that is is useless. And of course, that's what inspires people to push for more rigorous accounts of cause and effect. Yes. But but the, the, if you go too far the other direction, then you become incapable of seeing anything that's larger. And, and the solution, of course, is to think in systems and structures and to think in bigger picture yeah. ways about causation. Yeah. And perhaps an example of making priorities while also balancing is is the split affected um, in early modern times between politics and morality um, uh, which thinkers like Strauss trace back to Machiavelli, um, particularly the Machiavelli of, of the Prince. Um, and this split between politics and morality was largely affected by warfare. And then later on, you got the split between politics and economics and related the, between the public and private spheres affected in large part through trade. And uh, I mean, one difficult question is that of these two splits, the politics-morality split and the politics-economic split, uh, which is more important, or which of these would be more likely to end first? I think it perhaps might be reasonable to say that the split which is likelier to end first is the more recent one, the one which is more immediate, the split between politics and economics, the the trading side of modernity, the warring side of modernity is perhaps more far off ending and perhaps both aspects are far off ending. I think it perhaps must be noted that the first step is the creation of the modern state. War in the early modern period led to the modern state um, as conceived by Machiavelli and then especially by Hobbes. And then trade from the 18th century led to the rise of um, what 
um, came to be known as capitalism. And of these two things which characterize our lives, uh, these two um, systematic principles of, of, of contemporary life, capitalism and the modern state, it's clear that both will end at some point because nothing lasts forever. But because capitalism is a more recent creation than the modern state, I think it would be reasonable to suggest that if one were to end first, it would probably be capitalism. And the modern state would also end at some point. Um, but it's likely that that would take a bit longer to end than capitalism. Um, although, of course- An interesting hypothesis, but- and one which would cause a lot of distress for people who expect to end capitalism by ending the modern state. They could end um, simultaneously, but it seems unlikely that things would end completely spontaneously, partly because you can't create a new thing out of nothing. You have to take what you have. You need some kind of pivot. So to change things, you often have to latch onto something that's already there and found that as your Archimedean point. And you can later abandon that point you know, just as you're stepping across a, a, a river um, along stones, you might you know, step on one stone and then abandon that stone as you step onto the next. Um, but you still need to make that first step. And that first step might mean um, incorporating aspects of the old in order to get to the new. Well, I think it's always very difficult to try to change both the substance of what you're doing and the legitimation narrative which gets people to accept what you're doing yes, yes. at the same right. time. And people often- at, yeah. That's the, the big Robespierre yeah. mistake, is to try to change the legitimation mechanics of the state and to change what the state substantively does at the same yes, time. Yes. That's a very fragile thing. It's like <laughs> being Wile E. Coyote running off a cliff and trying to construct pylons underneath you as you so, run. Yeah. Instead, what we get is we get this stylistic radicalism from politicians who have stylistic radicalism, but substantive conservatism, who will talk the talk of uh, radical change, but won't actually be able to, um, or perhaps don't even intend to affect such change. Whereas I think what we need from movements and politicians is perhaps a bit less stylistic radicalism and a bit more substantive radicalism. In other words, instead of tying uh, stylistic radicalism to substantive conservatism, we might need more stylistic conservatism um, to tie to substantive radicalism. Because if we don't have a style that attends to what people are comfortable with right here and now, um, then we're never going to get through uh, alternative uh, substantial measures um, because people, what reason do people have to accept these more substantial measures? And it's easy to say, well, people will accept the substance for itself. But at the end of the day, um, people like good style too. (laughs) And it's important to put on a good show um, and it's not possible to really do that if we don't have a style that is acceptable. And, and perhaps an acceptable style is one that is a, a bit less radical, partly because we don't know what the, new, the styles of the future will be. We don't know what, um, c- what economic changes might exactly do to a future uh, cultural landscape. Um, only future people will know those things. All we can know is that there are some problems with the world that might need addressing, and we need to find out ways of of getting through the substantive reforms 
whatever style is required, because at the end of the day, it's the substance that will change the world, not the style. So we should be more open to changing the style uh, than we currently are. Yeah, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that we can't make any informed guesses about the future development of culture. <laughs> yes, style, but, yes. But certainly we can't be sure about those no, things. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we seem to have smacked an hour and a half, so I think we'll wrap it up for today. We're doing a patron Q&A episode this week, which should release more or less concurrently with this episode. So do feel free to check that out. If you subscribe to us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash political theory 101, all lowercase, no space. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. I think next week we're going to, did, did we say we were going to revisit the later Frankfurt School and maybe some of the French post-structuralists a bit? Mm. Habermas and Foucault and, and some of that? Yes. And also we were discussing possibility of um, considering Durkheim um, and anime. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah, let's do that first. Okay, we're going to do Durkheim and anime alongside Marx and alienation. Next. Yes. We'll do that next. And then we'll go on to that that uh, kind of Habermas and, and Foucault and Marcuse yeah. Yeah. episode that we were thinking about. Yeah. That is kind of where we're heading, guys, uh, for, for next time and, and the time after that. Uh, so now we'll, we'll go over, we'll record that Q&A episode. So do feel free to check that out. And I hope you guys are having a wonderful, wonderful day full of utility, lots of pleasure, <laughs> not much pain, <laughs> lots of instrumental value to you, <laughs> the satisfaction of your preferences, whatever those may be. <laughs> many hedons. Many hedons. Yes. Many hedons and, and morons to you. Yes. All right. Uh, Thanks, guys. See you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.